great God in heaven, as we come to this portion of our worship service where all of our eyes and hearts are focused on Your Word and Your Word alone, God, we ask that You would speak in spite of a foolish servant. Father, we ask that You would deliver Your Word. God, that You would convict us. Father, that You would challenge us, but that You would also comfort us and that You would also encourage us, God, that we might love You and serve You, that we might heed the truth that is found in Your Word and in Your Word alone. We ask for You to speak now, Father, for we, Your children, are humbly listening. We ask these things in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Amen. If you have a Bible with you this morning, I invite you to take it and turn with me once again to the book of Hebrews. We have made it to chapter 10 in the book of Hebrews. And so we will read chapter 10, verses 1 through 18 this morning. We will be in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 18. If you do not have your own copy of Sacred Scripture, there should be one in the back of the pew in front of you, or the verses will also be on the screen for you to follow along. As you do find your place in Sacred Scripture, I would ask, if you're physically able, would you please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's Holy Word as we look together now at the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, beginning... In verse 1, the word of the Lord. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they not, they would, mm. otherwise, they would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. 
And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. As we come to chapter 10, we are drawing to a close a theme that has been carried from chapter 3 all the way till verse 18 of chapter 10. There are numerous things that the author of Hebrews has wanted to and has very clearly established in this letter about Jesus. He first off starts off saying that Jesus is superior to all of the regular priests who mediate the Mosaic Covenant. That's the angels, that's those who are ministers of God in chapter 2. He also establishes Jesus' superiority to Moses himself in chapter 3. Jesus is superior to the line of Aaron, the high priest through the line of Aaron. Jesus is superior to that in verses four in chapters 4 through 7. He's superior, his blood is superior to the blood of the bulls and the oxes and the lambs and the sacrifices of the former covenant. And then lastly, here in chapters 9 and 10, Jesus' death is superior to all of the deaths of the sacrifices that came before. In every way, step by step, the author of Hebrews has been telling us and laying out for us that Jesus is superior to everything that we may have known formerly. As he writes to a Hebrew audience, as he writes to a Jewish audience, he says everything that you've known before, Jesus is superior to all of that. He says that Jesus is able to sympathize with human needs. Jesus is perfect and holy. He is eternally our high priest. He's initiating a new and better covenant. He is ministering in the true tabernacle which is in heaven. Again, that's reinforced in the first few verses here of chapter 10 that the tabernacle and the things here on earth are just a shadow of what really exists in heaven. And Jesus is there in heaven ministering in the heavenly tabernacle. And Him presenting Himself as the sacrifice was a once for all sacrifice. It was for all eternity. It was an infinite sacrifice. It does not need to be repeated year in or year out or every century or every millennium. Every time period throughout history is covered by the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And then here in chapter 10, the author goes a step further and says not only is it a once for all sacrifice that is sufficient, but those previous sacrifices never were actually cleansing you. They were never able to fully wash away your sins. So let's look together in chapter 10 at how the author of Hebrews makes this argument. He says that the Mosaic law with its priesthood, with its covenant, with its sacrifices, with its tabernacle, all of that has always been intended to be a picture of what exists in heaven. It's been intended to be a picture of what Jesus would fulfilled. They're all insufficient. They are all just pictures or what it says in verse 1. They are shadows of the things to come. 
And they're not like Peter Pan's shadow. They don't have a mind of their own, okay? They are reflecting what is in heaven. It is a shadow that is cast by the true things in heaven, the true tabernacle, the true throne, the true altar. And so there's a repetition over and over again here on earth of these earthly sacrifices of going in to the Holy of Holies. And as we've talked about many times, having to wear the bells and having the rope around you so that if the high priest goes in and he is not pure of his own sin, he falls over dead and you hear the bells ring and you know to pull him back out. And then the next high priest has to go and try again. Over and over again, every year, your sacrifice, the blood sprinkled over you, is only good for this year's sins. It only signifies that you're covered for a short time. And then next year, at Yom Kippur, at the Day of Atonement, just like we talked about last week, you have to make some sort of sacrifice for your family and cover your family for the year that is to come. Last year's sacrifice can't cover next year's sins. It's all just a picture of how we are saved. And the thing about it is that's been understood throughout the Old Testament. Somehow or another, our Jewish brothers and sisters, those who grew up in a Jewish background, focused on the picture, focused on the shadow, focused on the bronze snake that was raised up on the post instead of the one that the bronze snake pointed to. They get fixated on the details, on the ritual, on the ceremony. And I, I know it's easy for us to throw rocks at them, to point fingers at them, but how, how quick are we susceptible to fall into the same pattern of focusing on the ritual, on the ceremony, on the ceremonial, on the shadow, on the things that are only pictures of what is to come. Our focus and our gaze should be fixed upon the eternal and not the temporal. Because that's the sin that Israel fell into. They focused on the importance of the earthly high priest instead of looking for the high priest that was to come. But that was understood even with Adam and Eve. With Adam and Eve, the prophecy in Genesis chapter 3 is that the serpent would bruise our heel and that the Savior, the Son, would crush His head. The seed of the woman would crush His head. That there would need to be a seed of the woman, a Messiah who comes to crush the head of the serpent. Even in Adam and Eve's nakedness, they tried to cover themselves with fig leaves, but the Lord Himself sacrificed an animal to make for them clothing and cover them Himself. Adam and Eve couldn't cover themselves. Their fig leaves were pathetic and poor. And so the Lord made clothing and covering for them. It is pictured in the earliest recounting and earliest records and earliest stories that we have that God would provide the sacrifice and cover the sins of His children. He did it for Adam and Eve. Abraham also understood this. You'll remember as we get to Genesis chapter 22, God calls on Abraham and says, you must take Isaac, your only son. The language that ties to John 3. For God so loved the world that He gave His Son, His only Son, His only begotten Son. And God calls to Abraham and says, Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son, Isaac, and I want you to go up the mountain with him and I want you to sacrifice him. And even Isaac, as he goes up the mountain, all of the wood for the burning, for the offering, is laid upon Isaac. Isaac has to bear his own cross up the mountain. 
And so we see Christ carrying His cross up the mountain, even in Isaac. And when Isaac looks at his dad and, and filled with faith and trust in his father, he says, Hey, Dad, can we forget something? Don't we need like a ram or like a goat or, or I don't know, something? A bull, an ox, any, anything, Dad. I mean, really? What are we going to sacrifice? And Abraham says prophetically in verse 8, he says, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they both went together. Abraham knew in faith. He told the servants before they left, you guys wait here. Me and my son, we're going to go up the mountain and worship, and then we will come back to you. From the very earliest pages of Scripture, you have Abraham, one of the founding patriarchs who understood that these sacrifices that were to come, these burnt offerings were pictures of the one sacrifice that God would provide for himself god covers adam and eve god prophesies in genesis 3 that there would be one who would come to crush the head of the serpent abraham prophesies and says the lord will be the one to provide a sacrifice for himself and then the mountain where they made the sacrifice becomes the very temple mound where jesus clears out the temple of the money changers the name of the mountain, Mount Moriah, is called the name, the mount where the Lord will provide. On the mount the Lord has provided, on the mount the Lord will provide. That's the very mountain that the temple where they offered the sacrifices every year was built. And yet they were blinded to what it was pointing to. You were to remember what Abraham said about the sacrifice that would come. That's why the temple was on that mountain. And yet they got so fixated and focused upon the ritual of going into that temple on that mountain that they missed what the mountain represented. That's why as we continue in this passage in Hebrews chapter 10, you get to verses 5 and 7 and, and the author is quoting Psalm 40. Because not only did Abraham get it, not only was it there in Genesis, David understood this. The prophet Samuel understood this. Sadly, the, the king Saul understood this in the worst ways possible. If we look together in 1 Samuel chapter 15, beginning in verse 19. 1 Samuel chapter 15, beginning in verse 19. Why then, this is Samuel speaking to King Saul. Samuel, the prophet of Israel anointed by the Lord to give guidance to the king. King Saul, the one that they insisted upon having instead of trusting the Lord and the ones that the Lord would raise up. They demanded a king like the other nations. They get King Saul. 1 Samuel chapter 15, beginning in verse 19. Samuel says to Saul, Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people, the people, you see, they took of the spoil, the sheep and the oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said... Has the Lord as great of a delight 
in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obedience to His voice. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. To listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, He has also rejected you from being king. King Saul gets caught up in the sacrifices themselves, in the ritual. Samuel, I know what you said. I know what God said. But instead of devoting all of those things to destruction, just like you said to do, I'm going to take the best of everything, and I'm going to take the best cows and the best oxen and all of the best animals, and we're going to burn those as sacrifices to the Lord. The Lord didn't ask for you to do that, King Saul. The Lord didn't ask for you to go rogue on your own and decide that the sacrifices were more important than obeying and trusting God. What does it show when we disobey? Whether we disobey our parents, whether we disobey God. What did it show that King Saul disobeyed God? It showed he did not trust God. When you trust someone, you obey the words that they tell you. Nathan, get down. If I trust my father, I get down. If I don't trust my father, I disobey and I question. Why should I get down? How far should I get down? You know, you're saying get down. Are you meaning like bend? Do you mean like lay down, prostrate? What, what exactly, how exactly do you want me to get down? Just get down! If we trust, then we obey. King Saul did not trust. Therefore, he did not obey. So when Samuel says it is better to obey, it is better to trust in the Lord and obey His Word. Show that you trust Him by obeying Him rather than just offering sacrifices over and over and over and over again. And This is where Israel once again lost their way, even with stories like King Saul in their history. Even when they could go back and hear this and listen and see that God rejected Saul. Because Saul did not trust him and got caught up in giving offerings and burning sacrifices to the Lord. And Samuel says, it is better to obey than to just burn offerings and sacrifices on repeat. This is the same thing that King David is saying when he quotes Psalm 40 in Hebrews 10, 5-7. It's a Davidic psalm that's applied here that shows David's awareness That God desires faithful hearts, faithful lives, more than performance or sacrificial rituals or ceremonies. And sometimes we get so caught up and backwards, just like the Israelite people. But all throughout Scripture, this is reinforced over and over again. The fact that a new covenant would be necessary is even proclaimed by Jeremiah. And for the second time in three chapters, the author of Hebrews quotes for us again Jeremiah chapter 31. And he says, Behold, the days are coming. He says, I will make a new covenant and I will write my word upon their hearts and they will all know it. And it will be in their minds and in their hearts and in their bodies. That is the Holy Spirit within us. It is a prophecy and a prediction that when Jesus comes and when Jesus dies, the Spirit will come after Him and you will then get the Spirit and there will be a new covenant. 
The prophet Jeremiah said, don't look to the sacrifices because this covenant is passing away. There is great need for a new and fresh covenant. Look for that covenant. Be looking for it to come on the horizon. Isaiah over and over again from chapter 40 through chapter 66, over he talks about this suffering servant who is the Messiah. And yet, they're blinded to see. They can't see. They refuse to see. They don't want to see that there is a better covenant that was coming, that has come. And the author of Hebrews is begging them and arguing in every way he knows possible to show them one last time there's no need to continue to go and make offerings. There's no need to sacrifice bulls and rams anymore. We have a once and for all sacrifice in Jesus Christ. This is the last ditch effort in verses 1 through 18. After verse 18, he's going to make a turn. And for the last few chapters, as we look at the last little bit in the next weeks to come, It's much more practical. It's much more in light of everything we saw from chapter 1 through chapter 10, verse 18. Here's what we do. But in these last 18 verses, he makes one final effort to say it's not about you making sacrifices. It's not about how good you are at performing rituals. Folks, you don't show up on Sunday and get washed and get clean and then go live however you want the rest of the week. Don't think about coming back to church on Wednesday. I, I got clean on Sunday, preacher. Don't you be asking me to come back here in the middle of the week. I done got cleaned on Sunday, so I ain't coming back again now. And then Sunday rolls around again. Well, I got to go back to church this morning. I, I, got, to get, I got to repent of my sins and get, get straight, get, get on with the Lord, get right. How many of us go, well, you know, I, I'm having a bad week. It's probably because I didn't go to church on Sunday, you know. I wasn't there in the house of the Lord. I didn't perform my ritual. I didn't go down front and pray. I didn't, I didn't pray in my pew. I just was waiting for lunch. And I, I tell you what, it's because I didn't do my rituals. I know what it is. I've got to do my devotion every morning. If I just do my devotion every morning and check that box off, then I'll be a good Christian and then Jesus will love me. Right? If I just do a little bit more work, if I just, if I just be there for a few more events, If I just show up at church, maybe if I build something for the church, maybe if I donate a huge amount of money to the Annie Armstrong Eastern Offering, then Jesus will love me. Then I'll be forgiven. Then my sins will be covered. None of it will work. Praise God if you want to give $50,000 to the Annie Armstrong Easter Offering. But if you do that so that your sins will be forgiven, if you do that so that God will love you, if you do that to gain God's favor, you've missed the whole point just like the Israelites. Jesus died once and for all. And what He calls us to do is trust in Him, be covered by His blood, and exemplify that we trust Him by a life of obedience to Him. You don't show up to be saved. You show up because you are saved. And on Sunday morning, there's nowhere else that you'd rather be than in the house of the Lord, worshiping with your brothers and sisters, experiencing God's Spirit one more time. But if you're here this morning thinking that this is buying your ticket to heaven, I'm sorry, you're sorely mistaken. You're just as mistaken as the people that the author of Hebrews is writing to, thinking that if they just sacrifice a few more bulls, 
It's just like King Saul. If you could just sacrifice a few more oxen, if you could just sacrifice a few more goats, if you could just do a few more good things, it's never going to cut it. We must be perfect as He is perfect. And the only way to be perfect as He is perfect is to trust that He died for us. That He did the work that we could never do. That His blood is what covers us. And so church, this morning, we have communion. Communion is a reminder that His blood and His blood alone is what saves us. Communion is a declaration of the Gospel itself. Screaming to all those here and all those outside these walls that our sins were paid for by the once for all sufficient sacrifice of our Savior. That's what communion reminds us of. It reminds us that it's not about me. It's not about you. It's not about my preferences. It's not about your preferences. It's not about how hard I work. It's not about how hard you work. It's about the perfect work that was completed in Jesus. And unless we trust in Jesus, then there's no point in participating in the Lord's Supper. Folks, I just want to read for you another passage from 1 Corinthians. Chapter 11. Paul is talking to the Corinthians about the importance of communion. And he gets down to verse 27 and he says, Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself or herself and then... So eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. What Paul means in that passage is that it is of the utmost importance that you trust in Jesus Christ, His once and for all sacrifice, before you partake of this meal. Before you accept the bread and drink the juice, you must be born again and trust in Jesus. Trust that it's not your work that can get you to heaven, but trust that it is what Jesus has done that purchases our pardon. It also means that if you already believe in Jesus, that we must spend some time getting our hearts right before we flippantly or casually approach this table. Church, I I just wonder this morning, is there someone that you're holding a grudge against? Is there someone that you refuse to forgive? Is there someone that you are not reconciled to, that there is anger and resentment and bitterness in your heart towards that person? I would encourage you to get right with that person, to get right with the Lord before you take of the Lord's Supper. Maybe that means you pass the plate this morning. But I want you to understand, it's that important. This is not a time for judgment. This is a time for self-reflection. And if anybody is 
using this as a great time to look around and see, ooh, I saw so-and-so pass the plate. They didn't take the bread or the juice. They must not be Christians. They must be mad at somebody. They must have a grudge. I wonder what's going on in their lives. That's not going to be the kind of place that this is. This is a time to reflect upon ourselves. I got too big of a log sticking out of my eye to be picking specks out of your eyes. I got to get my heart right. And so what I want us to do is have a time to reflect and to repent and turn once again to God. So if you'll join me, let's look together and confess together. Reading from Psalm 51, verses 1 through 12. The verses will be on the screen. I encourage Let us read this together, and then once we are through reading, let's pray silently in your heart. If you need to come to the steps, to the altar, you do what the Lord leads leads you to do, lays upon your heart to do. We'll have some moments of reflection and prayer. After that time, I'll close us out with prayer. But I would ask, if you were able, please stand and read Psalm 51, verses 1 through 12, with me. As we look together, the word of the Lord. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face. From my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Let's pray.